I'm journalist Carolyn Osorio, and I invite you to join me and my co-host, Brandon Morgan, on our podcast, Criminal Mischief. From law enforcement officers seeking justice to victims' families seeking answers, every week there's a new case and a new victim whose story deserves to be told. New episodes of Criminal Mischief drop every Tuesday. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist, as always. Hello there. I'm your host, Simon. What happens here? One of my writers, in this case, Angus. Is this Angus's first script for this channel? Uh, I hope... I mean... (laughs) I kind of hope so, otherwise it's like, I totally forgot what you wrote previously, Angus. Not a comment on your writing, I just get confused. Uh, This is the Unibomb. I thought the short version for this was the Unibomber. But uh, yeah, we're covering Ted Kaczynski, obviously. I think this is a fascinating case. It's more like terrorist than a... I don't know, I guess like true crime, a true crime show can totally cover a terrorist. It's pretty crazy. Um, let's just jump into it, shall we? Oh, I haven't thanked Jen. Jen does the editing on this channel. Thank you, Jen. Let's go. I don't know about you, but when I think about ways in which day-to-day life has changed in the past 20 years or so, a few things are pretty much guaranteed to jump to mind. Computers, the internet, the climate, and shipping. I don't know, 20 years ago was only the turn of the millennium. It was 2002. And I feel like, yeah, things have changed. But we had all of those things before. They obviously got a lot better. Like the internet in 2002 was a bit of I remember using the internet at school. They'd be like, oh, what are we going to do? Well, we can look up some cheat codes for Grand Theft Auto. And uh, yeah, it wasn't that great. More specifically, domestic shipping. In 2020 alone, there were 131 billion packages delivered worldwide. 20 years ago, hearing that number would have seemed like an absurd proposition, not least because I only spent about 10 seconds finding out that fact and 4 seconds verifying it. The sheer volume of advancements that have occurred in these 22 years since the turn of the millennium are equal only to the number of innovations that occurred in the 60 years preceding it. Progress truly is increasing at an exponential rate, which for most people is cause for celebration. There is, however, a sector of society who abhor these developments, people who believe that progress could only mean the death of freedom, and so they remove themselves from society, return to nature, and live as they see fit. These people are called Luddites, right? When they were originally like, you know, the Industrial Revolution came along and someone invented some machine that takes like the work, it does like the work of six people and all it requires is to do to sit in a chair and press a button and make sure like the cotton doesn't get jammed or whatever. And then people came along, they're called Luddites, and they were like, let's destroy these machines because they're taking away people's jobs. And it's, I feel like this is just, <laughs> this is only going to go one way, guys. You're not going to destroy that machine. Everyone's going to be like, well, I guess we just don't build those machines anymore. It's going to go one way. Technology is going to happen. And I guess this is why these people realize they lost. And now when they need to, you know, live their free, free ways, they have to go out into the forest and live by themselves because everyone else is like, you know what's awesome? F***ing Instagram. (laughs) This is, of course, fine. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion and could choose to spend their lives as they like. But what happens when someone feels so strongly about the dangers of the future that they decide to take matters into their own hands? What happens when they choose to exact revenge on the very system they cut ties with? Add to that a genius-level intellect, and you will have the protagonist of today's episode. From a cabin measuring only 10 feet by 12 feet, the Unabomber used the US Postal Service to exact an 18-year-long bombing spree that claimed the lives of three people and cost the FBI $50 million. This is one of those ones. You know, normally we've done casual criminals before where it's like, I remember one of my favorite ones ever was there were so many true crimes out there called like Leopold and Loeb, the genius killers. 
And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. When someone's like super intelligent and gets up to killing. I'm like, I don't know why, but it does have this morbid appeal, doesn't it? It's probably why all those episodes are called the genius killers. I made an episode about that. And it's like, these guys are not geniuses. They seem just to be idiots. And anytime it's like, oh, he had a genius level intellect. It's like, no, he was just a little bit brighter than the average man on the street. He's not a genius. What I like about this story, or what I find particularly interesting, Ted's, Ted Kaczynski, proper genius, as we will find out. Which is rare, because normally it's just something you put in a title for clickbait. Whereas actually with this one, it's like, no, no, no. Very, very bright man. Universities, airlines, bombs. Unibomb. Oh, I see. Universities. It's, it's like, uh, what's it called? You know where you have, like, uh, FBI? Federal Bureau of Investigation. An anagram? Is it an anagram? No, that's where the words are jumbled up. Oh, I know this. It's so obvious. Everyone's thinking I'm so dumb now and are probably screaming at their phones. <laughs> I'm so sorry. On the morning of May the 25th, 1978, amid the chorus of engines that mark the early morning rush hour, a box wrapped in brown paper is found in the car park of Northwestern University, Chicago. Illinois. The package was innocuous enough, neatly wrapped, bearing only an unknown recipient with a fake address, several stamps, and the return to sender, who was a materials engineering professor that worked at the very same university, on Buckley Christ. What was particularly odd about this package was that it was just a few feet away from the mailbox. The stamps were uncancelled, and it was all ready to be posted, except that it was just lying there. The conscientious citizen finds the package and gives it to campus security, who subsequently return it to a bemused Christ, who had no recollection of ever sending such a package. If I found that and it was next to the mailbox, isn't the right thing? Why would you hand it to campus security? Wouldn't you just dump it in the mailbox? I'd be like, oh, okay, someone obviously left it here. Just drop it in the mailbox. That seems sensible. And then it would go. It would try to get to that address, and then it would get returned to sender to this Christus guy. I guess maybe that's what they intended to happen, or what Kaczynski intended to happen. Taking it to a university security guard, Christ explains that he wasn't sure where this package had come from, but it certainly wasn't from him. Terry Marker, the security guard, opens the package and it explodes. Well, we say explodes, it just really makes a small bang and catches fire. Hidden within this package was a primitive explosive. It only caused minor cuts and burns to Marker's face and hands, and thankfully everyone involved could walk away from that exchange, shaken but mostly unscathed. The authorities interviewed Chris and searched for the person the package was addressed to, but it turned out that they were entirely fictional, which meant that someone had made the bomb with the intention of it being returned to Chris. Incidentally, Chris knew of no one who might have this kind of grudge against him, and there was no forensic information that could be gathered from the remains of the device. All the pieces were made from common household items, and there were no hairs, fingerprints, or revealing clues of any kind. The police would divert some resources to investigating, but with little hope of finding a culprit. This would mark the beginning of the most expensive criminal investigation in u.s history that kind of surprises me i know 50 million dollars is obviously a lot of money but that's the most expensive investigation in u.s history does that not like count what about i guess i'm thinking like big terrorists like 9-11 and stuff but it was like yeah it was al-qaeda very quickly they knew that i feel like there's got to be i don't know it just seems quite reasonable to be honest just short of a year later, same university, same building, a package is placed on the desk of a graduate student, this one much smaller than the last, but equally as effective. A small pop, then fire. Similar injuries were sustained by the recipient, John Harris, but once again, everyone involved could thankfully walk away from this exchange with their lives mostly unaltered. Same as last time, forensic analysis was carried out, but same as last time, no revealing clues were pulled from the wreckage. Then, six months later, on November 15, 1979, American Airlines Flight 444 took off from Chicago International Airport bound for Washington, D.C. Just after takeoff, an explosion can be heard from the cargo hold. Shortly after, the air vents begin blowing smoke into the plane cabin. 
Acting fast, the pilots diverted the flight to Dallas Airport, landing safely and evacuating all on board. Authorities quickly found the source of the smoke, a crudely made bomb disguised as a package and sent via air freight to an unknown location in Washington, D.C. It's a little bit alarming that a bomb can get onto a plane. Well, this was 1979. I guess they weren't so thorough. But they're scanning all your luggage, right? When you get onto a plane, all that stuff's going through a scanner and someone's looking at it. You know, like when you do your personal baggage and you see the x-ray. Someone's also doing that for all the main baggage, right? Obviously. <laughs> This new bomb was theoretically powerful enough to blow a hole in the side of the plane. However, it had only partially ignited, with most of the explosive material being burned away in the ensuing fire. Fortunately for all on board, the homemade altimeter that would have triggered the bomb once the plane reached 34,000 feet malfunctioned. Once again, fatalities were narrowly avoided, and all could walk away from the event scared but relieved. However, to the authorities, this attack was more evidence of an alarming pattern that was beginning to form. Explosive weapons aimed at the general public that, had they gone according to plan, would have resulted in fatalities. In other words, there was a serial bomber somewhere out there. And also, delivering a bomb to an individual at a university, I feel, is a lot different from putting a bomb on a plane. Because in one, you're like, oh, maybe you're going to blow up one or two people in an office. Best case scenario. You blow a hole in the side of the plane, you're going to kill 100 people plus. Easy, depending on the size of the plane. This gave local authorities enough cause to make this a matter of federal law, which requires federal investigators. So if you'll pardon the cliche, they decided to call in the big guns, or otherwise known as the FBI, which I'm sure makes Simon a very happy fact boy indeed. Yeah, totally. Uh, what have I said before? Like, uh, when the FBI gets involved, it's like you're mu I just feel like you're much more likely to get caught, because no, no disrespect to local police, but the FBI, they're like... This is entirely just based on movies I've seen, but they're like super competent. <laughs> and to quote how Simon eloquently put it, yeah, the FBI, the CIA, they're the ones who, you know, they're the best. <laughs> they are, right? I mean, they are. Isn't that what, you know, the FBI is like, they deal with like, whenever you hear about a serious crime, it's like FBI gets involved, right? So in 1979, an FBI-led task force was assembled, including people from the ATF and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. What is, is ATF, that's the alcohol tobacco firearms right must be is that the one that the guy in breaking bad works for no there's another one for drugs which i don't remember oh it doesn't matter it's worth mentioning that you have so many three-letter agencies <laughs> and they all do specific it's like yeah we hunt for explosives and drugs and the other guys are like what cia spies fbi is like um well, we know what the FBI... Doesn't matter, let's just move on. It's worth mentioning that the moniker Unibom was not yet coined. That would come later. As far as I can tell, the most common name at this time was the Scrapyard Bomber, owing to his bombs being made from primarily scrapyard parts. Although, for ease, I'm just going to refer to him as the Unibomber from here on out. As for the task force itself, they were a small collection of investigators and forensic analysts, most of which were dealing with other cases on top of this one. The few that were solely focused on this case could pull next to nothing from the parts left behind. They were, in expert improvised explosives created from scrap that could be found anywhere there were no fingerprints or defining features outside of little bits of wood and bark that were found in the airline bomb all the intended victims had no discernible connections to one another and none of them could think of a person that would have any reason to want them dead with very little to go on the task force probably felt as though they were fumbling in the dark which they essentially were so far the individual had given them no clues no motive no pattern that could show them where he may strike next what was becoming clear, however, was that whoever was carrying out these attacks was becoming more competent at their craft and more ambitious in their methods. I don't understand how this can go so badly wrong, wrong for someone who we later found out is so smart. Because the Unabomber, 
I mean, if you were doing this, why would you like test out your packages by mailing them somewhere? Just if you're going to make bombs, make some bombs, set them off in the garden, and when you've got it working, I don't. I feel like I'm giving advice here, but it just I'm trying to be. I'm trying to criticize the technique because it's like, why wouldn't you make sure your bombs work really well before you mail them anywhere? You can't even observe the results directly. Then, seven months after the airline bombing, the Unabomber struck again. On June 10, 1980, the president of United Airlines, Percy Wood, received a package containing a copy of the book Ice Brothers by Sloan Wilson, with a note attached encouraging him to read it. Fortunately, the concealed pipe bomb within did not kill him. However, unlike the previous attacks, the Unabomber had finally managed to severely maim someone. Causing severe burns and lacerations all over his body, Percy Wood would be scarred for life by the incident. This time there was little doubt that this was the work of the Unabomber. Among the wreckage was a metal blasting cap with the letters FC inscribed on it. This would become the Unabomber's modus operandi. It would appear in near enough every bomb that would be sent. Many investigators were convinced that finding out what the letters stood for would be the clue that solved the case, and in a way they were right. However, that revelation was a long way off. I, I'm familiar with this case, like I imagine a lot of people are. I don't remember what FC stands for. But also, if you are the Unabomber and you want people to know that all of these bombs were sent from you, I would choose something, and if this was me, I would choose something that meant nothing. I'd just something to identify that, yes, I sent this, you know it was me, but it wouldn't, you know, FC would just mean nothing. You could choose, like, yeah, it's like Z3. Just write this Z3 on there. It means nothing, just chosen at random. And I'm sure people would tie their heads in a knot over it, where it's just like, it's just an identifier. That's it. The next attack came on October the 8th of the following year at the University of Utah, placed by the Unabomber himself. It was a simple brown paper bag wrapped with string. This time, he had used a new design that involved an incendiary component with the obvious intention of setting the building on fire. The package had no address and was left like the one in the car park unattended. A maintenance worker spotted the package lying on the floor and decided to investigate. After seeing that there was no address and no doubt aware of the recent attacks on universities, he became suspicious and called the police. He called the bomb squad, who in turn and verify that it was, indeed, a bomb, removing it from the site and detonating it safely, injuring nobody. Though the bomb squad observed as much as they could of the package from a distance, there was near to no hard evidence remaining after the blast, save for a detonating switch, some pieces of wood, and a few metal fragments, one of which had the letters FC engraved on its surface. As for reasonable suspects, the police were stumped. By this point, the investigation had been ramped up in size, adding psychological analysts to their team. The psychological profiles that they produced were about as varied as you can get, ranging from an upset scientist to an illiterate with erectile dysfunction, and several stops in between. That is, uh, that is too very. <laughs> it's an upset scientist, and a guy who can't get it up. <laughs> you just, just going for everything, are we? If you're curious about that last one, um. Oh, the erectile dysfunction one is because he seemed to be obsessed with wood. Wooden construction of bombs, fragments of bark in the casings, and several of his victims had names somewhat related to wood. <laughs> oh, because he's like, wait, just because you say when you, you know, got wood. Really? This seems like a big stretch. And so the FBI pulled from that that he couldn't get wood. <laughs> really, guys? I take back what I said about the FBI. As for the bit about him being illiterate, I guess they just didn't like him. While Wood was minutely related to the ideology of the Unabomber, it's pretty clear to see that the investigators were truly lost. As far as they were concerned, this Unabomber was a phantom, a ghost that had the ability to materialize just long enough to post a letter before vanishing again without a trace. 
The ghost struck again on the 5th of May at another university. A package addressed to Professor Patrick C. Fisher was delivered to Pennsylvania State University. However, Professor Fisher hadn't worked there for some two years. The package was forwarded by a secretary to his current place of work at Vanderbilt University. At that time, Fisher was on holiday in Puerto Rico, and his secretary, Janet Smith, was the one to open the package. By this point, the Unabomber had refined his design enough to consistently cause serious injury to the recipient. This time, though, the Unabomber had gone a step further. A small metal fragments and nails lined the inside of the bomb casing. They were to be sent flying when it exploded like pellets from a shotgun, embedding themselves in the first solid thing they met. This time, that was Janice Smith's hands, face, and abdomen. She, too, would survive the encounter, although she'd be severely scarred. The next attack occurred just two months later, on July 2, 1982, in UC Berkeley, California. A professor of engineering, one Diogenes J. Angelikos, comes across what he described as a piece of engineering equipment on the floor of the faculty lounge with a gallon of fuel sitting next to it. Both the piece of engineering equipment and the gallon container of fuel contained a pipe bomb. This one wasn't disguised as a package. It wasn't addressed. It was just lying there. Bending down to pick it up, the professor places his hands on the device, lifts it just a few inches, hears a click, a second's pause and then the explosion. Um, I guess he didn't know it was a pipe bomb, even though we just described it as a pipe bomb. I, I, I guess that's the thing. You see something on the floor, you're like, what is that doing in here? That's weird. Someone must have left some equipment. And you pick it up, and then it's a bomb, because you don't expect people just have left a bomb on the floor. Thankfully, the gasoline did not ignite, and similar to the last two bombs, severe injuries were inflicted, with no deaths and no discernible identifiers, not even the FC-stamped metal. However, the means of delivery was different. The Unabomber had been there, in that room at the university, perhaps an hour or less ago. Despite this, there were no witnesses, nobody saw anyone acting suspiciously, and yet he was able to enter university, into the faculty lounge long enough to place an armor bomb and then leave the area, all without raising any suspicion or even being seen. Immediately, I'll be, okay, we need to interview all of the faculty, because that's a, that's the best lead you got so far, right? Imagine you were the investigator in this scenario. What sort of information could you pull from these attacks? No fingerprints, no witnesses, no forensics, other than burned-up bomb parts and shrapnel. Well, immediately, I'll be like, I feel like the most likely person to bomb academics is going to be fellow academics or students, right? It's going to be someone in their field. We know it's not their family members because these academics are getting bombed and they're not related or anything and they're in different locations. So immediate, and then you also some, no one raised suspicions like of this guy wandering around a university. So you'd think he's a student or an academic at this university or another, or he knows enough about universities to like move his way around. So it could be someone who works at the university. No connection between the intended victims other than the fact that they work in science-related fields and still no motive, no pattern, and worst of all, no mistakes. At least no mistakes that revealed the culprit's identity directly. What is there to know that someone could use in a profile other than he can't get it up? Clearly, out-of-the-box thinking was required, and from this attack, the best thing they could do was pull that the bomber must have some kind of affiliation with UC Berkeley to be comfortable enough to move around the campus and place himself within a room restricted to university staff only. There was also a mistake that the bomber had made, though it was minuscule. He had sent a bomb to the wrong place to start with. Unaware, Fisher had changed his university two years prior. He sent the bomb to Pennsylvania State. This told investigators one of two things. One, the culprit had known Fisher prior to his moving and had not been made aware, or two, wherever he was getting his addresses was at least two years out of date. Not much to go on, but it was better than nothing. So I'd now be thinking it's a university person who has left the field and no longer has contacts, or now all the contacts are out of date. Which was all they had 
for the time being. Their near-non-existent evidence room on the Unabomber remained as it was for nearly three more years. And then seemingly out of the blue, the bombs began to fall again, this time with an alarming frequency. Beginning again on the 15th of May 1985, when John Hauser, an Air Force captain and graduate student working at Berkeley, discovers a three-ring binder on his desk with a note requesting him to review a student's master's thesis on the history of science. Upon opening, the binder explodes, shattering several bones in his skull, partially blinding him in his left eye, causing severe trauma to his right hand, severing nerves and losing four fingers. In a tragic turn of events, Diogenes Agilekos, the victim of the July 1982 bombing, was just across the hall at the time of the explosion and was temporarily deafened by it. Despite this, he was the first to attend to Hauser, who was still thankfully alive, using his tie as a tourniquet. Further impaled in the now blackened wall behind where Hauser had been standing just moments before was a small metal pin with the letters FC engraved on the side. Only a month later, a bomb was discovered in a Boeing manufacturing plant in Washington. However, this was defused with no casualties. Then, four months later in November, a package was delivered to James McConnell, a psychology professor at Michigan State. Attached to the package was a note prompting him to open it in the room with him was Nick Sonino, McConnell's assistant. The bomb inside peppered McConnell with shrapnel and caused severe burns. Sonino was deafened in one ear and partially deafened in the other. However, once again, both survived. This new wave of attacks from the Unabomber had unleashed a hitherto unseen ferocity. After three years of dormancy, the authorities were once again left without a clue. They had literally no means of predicting where or when he would strike next, and only one thing was for sure. He was dead set on getting a kill one way or the other, and with a trend of increasingly powerful and sophisticated bombs, there was little doubt that sooner or later he was going to achieve his goal. Finally, on December the 11th, 1985, after seven years and ten bombs, he managed to do just that. The day prior, the Unabomber caught a bus that carried him to Sacramento, California. He paid cash for a room in a motel, he finalized his plans, and took some time to scout out his location at Century Plaza. The following morning, on the 11th, after completing his preparations, he set out for his chosen spot, a computer rental business called Rentec. Upon his arrival, he walked around to the back of the business, where there was an alley connecting the street with the car park. He stops looks around, making sure that no one's looking, before crouching down and placing a brown paper bag on the ground. Contained within the bag was, of course, a small pipe bomb with shrapnel glued to the exterior. He then places two lead weights in the bag on either side of the bomb, before loading the mechanism and arming the device. He stands up and walks calmly away. Inside the store, the owner, Hugh Scrutton, was just getting ready to go for lunch. He left someone to run the front desk before exiting the back door. Spotting a paper bag on the ground, he walked over and bent to pick it up, perhaps thinking it was someone's rubbish. At roughly 12.04pm, the explosion went off. Triggered when Scrutton picked it up, his chest took the brunt of the blast, throwing his body ten feet backwards and collapsing on the tarmac. The explosion had ripped the skin from his chest, burned the muscles and organs underneath, and broke most of his ribs. Moments after the explosion, a person with an earshot came running. Seeing this person approaching Hugh Scrutton, he apparently cried out, Oh my God, help me. The scene that greeted the would-be saviour was one of utter destruction. A smoking crater several inches deep and a man lying on the floor, flesh blackened and blood pouring from the spot where his chest should have been. An ambulance was called, but very little could be done. Hugh Scrutton was pronounced dead at Sacramento University Medical Center at 12.34 p.m., 30 minutes after the explosion. And this is also weird. I mean, it's been so much time, and now he's come back, and he's not. This isn't an academic. I mean, in retrospect, we know what he was after. He's going after, you know, technology and all, all that sort of stuff. But this is a change in mo. 
The Unabomber had finally done it. He had hit back at the system he so despised. At first, it was hard to connect this bombing with him. However, the discovery of a metal plug with the letters FC stamped across it gave investigators all they needed to know. This would have infuriated the investigators to no end. For a moment, the Unabomber had materialized long enough to enter an area, plant a bomb, and leave, all without a single witness. And for another 14 months, it remained immaterial. After his surge of bombings, he clearly felt he needed to rest, and perhaps even took a moment to consider the reality of taking a man's life. Or perhaps he was savoring it. I don't think he was savoring it. Unless I'm really mistaken about what uh, the Unabomber wanted, he wasn't like sick. I mean, he obviously was because he was killing people, but he wasn't. He, I don't think he took pleasure in killing people. He was just trying to get a point across in an insane way. I think he was probably dealing with the fact that he'd killed someone. For those next 14 months, the investigators had nothing more to go on, repeatedly going over the evidence, the clues, and pulling no more concrete information from it than the day it had entered the evidence locker. And still was the enigma of FC. Those two letters were dog investigators for nearly the entire investigation. They had no clues to what it might stand for. All they could do was guess. And guess they did. From the names of prominent figures like Fidel Castro to simple slogans such as the impolite request for the procreation of cops. <laughs> if they could find it, then they could cut out the vast majority of the population and focus on only those types of people who would want to attach themselves to those two letters. Whatever they stood for, they would have to wait for the Unabomber to step into the open once again. Whatever he was doing in that time, it took him 14 months before resurfacing again, and that time he'd built a new bomb. Seemingly feeling confident with the success of his last attack, this next one was also one that he placed himself in a strip mall in Salt Lake City, Utah. This bomb was disguised as a piece of construction debris, a few planks of wood nailed together with some nails sticking out. On the morning of the 11th of February 1987, a man walks into the parking lot outside of Cam's Inc. computer hardware store. He bends down, places the bomb on the floor, arms the mechanism, and then looks at the storefronts around him. His eyes finally settle on the glass front of Cam's hardware store. He straightens up, still staring at the storefronts. A woman in the store is staring right back at him. For a split second, he holds her gaze before sprinting away. It's probably where we're going to get our first sketch of him, isn't it? Meanwhile, in the store, the woman summons her co-workers and says that she's concerned that a person is trying to leave some kind of trap to blow out people's car tires, though they are distracted by customers and they forget about it. After a couple of minutes, a car pulls up to the parking lot. It's the vice president of CAMS, Gary Wright. He gets out, looks at the plank of wood with the nail sticking out. He walks over to it and gives it a probing kick. The device immediately explodes. More than 200 pieces of debris covered his body. Nails are launched into his left arm, severing his nerves. Gary Wright would survive becoming another one of the Unabomber's victims. An ambulance and the police are called. The same as every other time, the construction of the bomb leaves no clues, save for a small piece of metal with FC stamped upon it. The attack is connected to the Unabomber, and true-to-type forensics can pull nothing from the device. However, this attack is different from every other. That is, when the police began interviewing all those who had been in the area, the secretary, who works at CAMS, comes forward and claims to have seen the person setting the bomb. She gives a description to a sketch artist who comes up with one of the most famous police sketches in history, the image of a man with aviators, a grey hoodie, and a moustache. The image would eventually become known as the Unabomb sketch. For the first time to date, the public and investigators in the task force had an image, proof that the Unabomber was indeed a real person. Yeah, and I don't have this image here. I'm sure Jen has put it up on the screen. Oh yes, I did. I did. But even, I know what that image is. Everyone's seen that image. It's probably one of the most famous police sketches in all of history. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hiatus in return. After seven years, 12 bombs and one fatality, the Unabomber had finally slipped up. No doubt bolstered by the success of his previous attack, he felt that he could pull off another just like it. He got confident and made a mistake. He had been seen, and he would not be identified again for more than a decade. Unlike many of the serial killers that we cover here, this one did not need the recognition and attention that came from the attacks. We know this because he would happily put an identifying trademark upon his bombs. He wanted his work to be recognized, but never his name never his face. Perhaps he knew what he was doing was wrong. Perhaps, unlike almost all other serial killers, he wanted to be known for his achievements without the burden of being known. Whatever his reasons, he would not allow another mistake. For nearly five and a half years, he would not make another move, seeming to fall off the face of the earth. No communication, no bombings, nothing. The investigation team began to dwindle. Investigators got reassigned. Interest from the public began to disappear. Officials thought, or rather hoped, that getting spotted had scared him off for good. The risk of getting caught had become too great, and he would desist for good this last time. Leads dried up, and evidence became little more than a place to gather dust. Then one day, as with the first bomb, the silence was broken. Like most mornings, June the 22nd, 1993, began with the mail getting delivered. At Charles Epstein's house, his daughter finishes her breakfast before going out to get it from the mailbox. There are a couple of letters and a padded envelope containing a package. As she heads back inside, she sees that it's addressed to her father, so she leaves it on the kitchen counter and heads upstairs. Later that day, Charles Epstein, a geneticist, returns home and finds the package on the counter. He slips it open and puts one hand on the envelope, removing the wooden box. A spring-loaded wooden catch passes the lip of the envelope, flips, and the package explodes. Epstein would survive, but by now the Unabomber was well past primitive bombs. If you were unlucky enough to be one of those recipients, there would be a very real possibility of death and serious harm. It was a guarantee. Charles Epstein lost four fingers, suffered severe abdominal trauma, facial burns, lacerations, and a broken arm. The following day, another package is delivered to Dr. David Gerlerinter, a computer science professor at Yale University. The design was nearly identical to the one sent to Epstein. The explosion blew off several of his fingers, deafened him in one ear, and blinded him in one eye. As odd as it sounds, nobody seemed to notice the explosion. Nobody ran to his aid. Whatever the reason was, Gerlerinter had no other option but to make his own way to find help, dragging his body down five flights of stairs to the university hospital where he received medical attention. <laughs> I don't think that university hospital is probably used to like dealing with some guy coming in with like major trauma where did you come from upstairs please help good lord it was also on the same day that the unabomber did something he'd never done before he sent a letter that didn't explode it was sent to an assistant managing editor at the new york times newspaper in the letter he connects the bombings of the last two days and specifies a nine-digit number for which he can authenticate any future communications with the authorities and newspapers for those who are interested this is 553-154394 he then signs off the letter FC. After years of silence, the Unabomber began his reign of terror again. In two days, he raised the collective tension of the entire nation. The FBI, who had been easing off their investigation, ramped it up to previously unseen levels, making it the largest ongoing investigation in the country. And it's here that we start to first hear the mentions of the word Unabom in a central office established in San Francisco. I think another thing about this is, finally, at least 
it seems like we're going to get an idea of what he wants you know he's sending a letter he's like i'm going to be in touch because for years years and years previously he's just been doing random bombings there's no clear motivation there's no clear desire there just seem to be random attacks of scientists and technology people and now it's like i guess the, i think the police would be very happy with this because it's like okay what does he want we need to know more about this guy because all we know now is that we don't think he can get it up <laughs> good work with a massive boost in funds that came from this new wave of attacks, also came a swath of new investigators and a new head of the investigation, Terry Turchi, a veteran of the FBI's counterterrorism division. Another new addition to the team was a psychological profiler, special agent Kathleen Puckett, a doctoral student working towards a PhD in clinical psychology. Am I imagining it? I saw a documentary about this. Was it a doc? Either that or it was a fictional show on Netflix, right? I don't know. I've made a vi another video about this. I've done like a biographics video about Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. And I can't remember if I'm confusing that with another one of those uh, really cool, stylish, true crime shows. Like true crime. You know, fictionalized versions of this stuff. There was one on Netflix. Was it called Unabomber? Hunting the Unabomber? Something like that? This was a few years ago. I remember it being very good. A new look was required at the evidence, and the investigation needed a new profile of the person they were now calling the Unabomber. Kathleen Puckett was the one to do it. She herself describes him as the most careful serial bomber that anyone had ever seen. The intention of bringing Puckett on board was to create an in-depth psychological profile, an avenue that hadn't yet been considered. While they had created a character profile, Puckett's job was to try to understand precisely who he was, why he was doing what he was doing, and from this they could try to find out other information about him. At the time, this was almost never an avenue that investigators went down. It was unproven and thought to be unreliable, appearing more like guesswork than any kind of real investigation. However, a closer look at the evidence was already giving new information. The first bomb, way back in 1978, began showing new clues. While at first investigators thought the package was simply left in the parking lot to gather attention, the fact that it was only feet away from a mailbox led the investigators to believe that he had intended on sending it. A reconstruction of the package showed that it was left there because it wouldn't have fitted in the postal slot, so the bomber simply dropped it and left it there. Though this seems like a useless detail, the investigation was able to use this and some other information gathered from the early bombings to surmise that the bomb was familiar with the Chicago area, meaning it was likely that he lived there at some point, perhaps even during the early bombings. Wait, why? Just because he left it by a postbox because it wouldn't fit in? That would imply to me that he doesn't know how big postboxes are in the local area. Why do they think he's local? There was also a note that was left on the three-ring binder, the Unabomber's eighth bomb, saying that the master's thesis was on the topic of the history of science. This was still a rather obscure area of study in the United States. Their initial conclusion was that he was a student of the subject at some point. They interviewed all of the qualified professors in the field, of which there were only a handful, and got a list of all previous students of that subject. They turned up nothing in the way of suspects, but according to Puckett, the idea of the Unabomber being connected to the hard sciences, it stuck. Then there was the letter sent to the New York Times, and it states that FC was an anarchist group, and that by the time of reading something of significance would have occurred. These were the two most recent bombs that went off. Within the letter he used the line, if nothing goes wrong, to qualify that one or both of the bombs could have malfunctioned. This line and his general means of proceeding thus far gave Puckett the feeling that whoever they were dealing with was cautious, speculative, impulsive, and because of this likely in the latter part of his life. These are some broad conclusions to pull from very little information, but the Unabomber had left almost nothing 
nothing behind for them to pull from, so they had to pull as much information as possible from this vast nothingness. Then, on the 10th of December, the Unabomber struck again at the home of an advertising executive, Thomas Moser. In a truly harrowing statement, Moser's wife, who was in the very next room with her 15-month-old daughter at the time, recounted the events of that day. I'll save you the gory details of what happens to a person's body when a bomb filled with fragments of cut-up razor blades, nails, and other metal pieces goes off in their hands. I would only serve to cheapen the fact that Thomas Moser lost his life, though a more agonizing death I can scarcely imagine. Another attack, and the Unabomber seemed to have perfected his design. True to type, no clues except a metal shard marked FC was found. Then, on the 24th of March, in a batch of deliveries to a postbox in California, the Unabomber would finally make the mistake that resulted in his capture. Well, to call it a mistake would be a bit misleading, because it was intentional. And as far as I could tell, it doesn't break any of Simon's rules to being a criminal, but then again, I haven't seen all of them. I'm not saying that Simon should send me a free notebook, but <laughs> anyway, moving on from that digression. The notebooks are coming. They are still being made. The day began with another bomb. And inside the notebook, it's a notebook. If you're new here, I'm I've been working on a notebook for like, I feel, it feels like six months, but it's really cool. It's like a leather bound notebook. And then you open it up and uh, you can take notes inside. But on the front page is the list of like casual criminalist rules. It's, uh, it's cool. I like it a lot. It's coming soon. The day began with another bomb delivered to Gilbert Murray at his work. Murray was the head of the California Forestry Association. This new design had resulted in another fatality, bringing his murder count to three and 17 total bombs sent. Later on that day, several letters are delivered to various recipients across the United States. David Gallardner, the victim of the 1993 attack, received a letter ridiculing him for opening an unexpected package from an unknown source, calling him dumb and a techno-nerd. That seems really out of character. Like, so far, this guy's super careful, and now we're just going to send a letter to someone ridiculing them? That seems strange. Real hard-hitting stuff. Joking aside, this must have been truly terrifying. Having this unknown person reopen another line of contact, this form of childish goading, only served to undermine the message that was contained in the other letters sent that day. Yeah, agreed. It seems really strange that he would send that when he's trying to like get this serious message that he truly believes in across, as you'll soon find out. Two leaders in the field of genealogy, Dr. Philip Sharp at MIT and Dr. Richard Roberts, would receive identical letters stating that it would be beneficial to your health to stop your research in genetics. Clearly, the Unibol was growing discontent with the approach of the silent murderer. He had a point to put forward, and he was doing so emphatically. <laughs> he was just like, someone says to me, I don't like your videos, stop making them, it would be good for your health. I'd be like, holy shit, I got a psycho on my hands. And how do they know my address? But also... I'm not going to stop, because if I did, like, what that would just be insane. His final letter of the day was the same editor at the New York Times, the one that had been contacted two years prior, connecting the Epstein and Galatna bombings and providing the nine-digit identifying number. It explains that Moser was the target of the most recent bombing because he had been the head of the marketing company that had handled the public relations of the Exxon company during the Exxon Valdez oil spill. He felt that he deserved to die because he had worked to clean up the damage that had been done to the company's public image. Yeah, okay, it's the PR guy. He's the one to blame. <laughs> the guy who's hired by a company to look less like a piece of shit. That's the bad guy, rather than the company being the actual piece of shit. What do you think? What? How does that make sense? The letter also spoke of an anarchist group that sought the breakdown of society into small, completely autonomous units. This group was, of course, FC. They now had their name 
Freedom Club. This was probably a little bit disappointing to the investigators who had hoped that finding out what FC stood for would narrow down the available pool of people who would associate themselves with such an acronym. Unfortunately, as it turns out, pretty much every American considers themselves to be a part of the Freedom Club. In fact, by this point, I think it's just another name for American citizenship. Yeah, but also, not everyone wants the breakdown of society into individualists or units because, well, we used to do that in the past. It was called tribes. And uh, I feel like we. I mean, I just have to say, I read that book, Sapiens, and he makes a very, you know, strong argument that things were better in the past, which I don't like because it's like, I think the past was the worst. But for most people, he's like, yeah, most people in the past were happier out like hunting and foraging rather than just doing jobs in offices and factories and on farms and stuff. And I'm like, that kind of makes sense, <laughs> depressingly. Though FC would not bring them directly to the Unabomber, the remaining information contained in the letter would. After explaining the intentions and origins of FC, the Unabomber wrapped up with an offer to that editor of the New York Times. Publish a manuscript that would be delivered at a later date, and in return, FC would cease all terrorist activities. Now, if I didn't know how this script was going to go, how this story goes, I'll be like, that's insane. Obviously, you don't negotiate with terrorists and you don't publish the letter because it's going to set a terrible precedent for terrorists blowing shit up in order to get something published in the New York Times. It seems absolutely mental that this is something they would do. But hold on! <laughs> Just wait for it. Quite the offer when the alternative was a continuation of the bombing scene in the last 17 years. However, the FBI's first reaction was to say no, sticking to the moral line and stating that the US government does not negotiate with terrorists. It's not a moral line. It's a super logical reasoning, because if you start negotiating, I mean, and the argument is, of course, the US government negotiates with terrorists. They do it all the time. But generally, look, if someone hijacks a plane and says, we're going to kill everyone on board unless you give us like a million, that's not enough, a billion dollars. Um, then obviously that's going to encourage hijackings of planes. And unfortunately, you can't do that. It's not just a moral thing. It's uh, it's super logical, which is also super surprising because as we're about to see, well, I won't spoil it, but let's carry on. However, someone must have been packing an Uno reverse card somewhere because they did a complete 180 and agreed to publish. Remember that profiler, Kathleen Puckett? Well, she read the manifesto and put forward an idea. With their pool of suspects containing about half the men in the United States, the FBI were no nearer to catching the Unabomber than they were to catching Bigfoot. And why hang on why did they why were they able to narrow it down to half of all men in the United States and why were they able to narrow it down to men? Why couldn't this be a woman? I mean, I guess it's less likely. You could just look at the statistics and be like, yeah, men are more into bombing and women are just less into violence in general and also more into poisoning, right? Isn't that what women choose to kill with typically? Poison? Extreme measures would have been taken to find a suspect, so she proposed that they make an appeal to the general public. As things stood, their most effective way of capturing the Unabomber was simply by interviewing every possible suspect that they could find, but like I say, the list contained the vast majority of the male population in the United States, so that was not exactly a practical solution. And even if they did do that, the suspect could easily just mislead investigators and slip through the net. What Kathleen Puckett was suggesting was that they use the public as their interviewers. Surely the Unabomber must know someone must have spoken to someone about their ideas they hoped to find 
that person. With the case being about as high profile as you can get at this point, publication would mean that they could paint a picture of the Unabomber using the sketch, their character backgrounds, and the psychological profiles of him. They would publish the manuscript and use the inevitable high public interest to make every father, brother, mother, sister, daughter, son, friend, and acquaintance part of the investigation team. Which does make a ton of sense, but it also does set a really dangerous precedent, because I didn't want to spoil it, but obviously they do publish these letters. They go out, I believe it's in two papers, which is it's kind of remarkable and it kind of shits all over my point that this hasn't really happened since there are no people sending bombs around saying i have to publish my manuscript in the papers or i'm going to continue sending bombs so i guess it didn't like end up setting a precedent but it it's kind of scary to to think that they did this because it totally could have this was about as long a shot as you can take in an investigation, and in doing it, they were in effect announcing to the entire country, and likely to the Unabomber himself, that they had no idea who he was. If it didn't work, they would simply have aided in spreading the ideology of a serial killer. However, Kathleen Pocket based... Angus, I feel like you're missing... Am I insane to think that this sets a danger... Angus just hasn't brought up the precedent issue. He's saying like it's about spreading the ideology of a serial killer. That's not the danger. The danger is encouraging this sort of behavior. Or am I insane? Am I, isn't that like a major problem with this sort of thing? I'm just, no? I don't know. Comments, please let me know. However, Kathleen Puckett, based upon her own psychological profile of the Unabomber, said that she felt certain that his offer to stop all terrorist activities was hollow. For one thing that he stipulated was that he reserved the right to take part in sabotage, stating that the difference was that he would stop bombing people, but he would continue to bomb infrastructure. The discord this sowed was enormous. The issue made it all the way to the desk of Head Justice Janet Reno, who, on the recommendation of Turchi, the head of the Unabom Task Force, agreed that publishing the manifesto would be the best course. So, when that day came, they would publish the manifesto with a psychological profile and the now infamous image of the Unabomber. This profile, thanks to the work of the task force and also the combined efforts of John Douglas and Kathleen Puckett, had come a long way from the pre-1993 profile. They stated that the Unabomber was likely a man in his late 40s to early 60s. He had higher education, likely highly intelligent, but also a neo-Luddite. If he was married, then he likely had a room in the house that no one was allowed to enter. Regarding his movements, they suspected that he was born up and grew in Chicago before moving away for college. They suspected that he had achieved a bachelor's degree and a master's, but failed at a doctoral dissertation. He then returned to Chicago for several years before moving to Salt Lake City and then finally settling in the San Francisco Bay Area. This would all be published as a precursor of the manuscript. I feel that that's a bit risky. Like, don't you want to leave it a bit more general, because you're reaching out to the whole giant world of the public. And I know there's going to be a lot of tips. You're going to get a lot of tips either way. But if you left it a little bit more general, like, we don't think he completed his doctoral thesis, seems like a bit of a stretch, even if it is true. And I don't remember if it's true. I get the feeling he did complete a doctorate. He, he did complete his doctorate. So what about this manuscript, you may be thinking? Well, what did it contain? Well, lucky for you, dear listener, I've taken the liberty of reading it. This 35,000-word manifesto titled Industrial Society and Its Future describes the failings of modern industrial society. It outlines how the freedoms of mankind are shrinking day by day. It provides examples, causes, and effects. In short, it lampoons the indefatigable technological progress of mankind and calls for an overthrow of the current system, stating, 
that we should return to an, ar- an, ar- an anarchic system of dispersed communities, subsisting and providing only for themselves. Even as I write this, I'm fully aware that it sounds like the ravings of a serial killer, and they are. However, it's also wholly convincing. As a little bit of a personal background, I'm an engineer. Technical progress is my business, so it's in my interest to disbelieve much of what he says about the flaws of technical progress. But even I can't argue with the points brought forward in the manuscript. In parts, yes, it just sounds like an eloquent child is writing about a kid they hate called The System. In other parts, the work writing comes across as jaded, and there are many unnecessary departures within that expose the author as the kind of person who harbors a deep-seated, ill-conceived, and yes, childish hatred of the world. However, in other parts, he puts forward predictions and points that are inarguably, and in some cases, rather alarming in their accuracy. But this is not an essay discussing the flaws and merits of the Unabomber's manifesto. More capable minds than I have seen both of these already. What interested the FBI was the style of the writing, the ideas, the ideal act, and the profile that would be provided alongside the publication. It was on the 27th of June that same year that the manuscript was delivered to Michael Gettler of the Washington Post and Warren Hodge, the editor from the New York Times, both of which had been typed out on a typewriter, a promising clue which the FBI chased up, though through either careful planning or plain luck, this typewriter was about as generic as you can get. Yeah, it's that is not just plain luck. If he's typing out this manifesto on a typewriter, he knows that they're going to be traceable, so he chose a super generic typewriter on purpose, and he probably disposed of the typewriter afterwards. Although I feel like if they get to his house, or as we later find out, his cabin, then it's too late for him anyway, so maybe he didn't dispose of the typewriter. I don't remember. He pro- yeah, he's probably like, if they're in my house, it's game over anyway. There was also a third manuscript posted out to Jerry Roberts at the San Francisco Examiner. Apparently, the Unabomber was getting a little bored of waiting for the governments to deliberate on publishing his manifesto because a letter was attached stating that a bomb had been sent using airmail and was going to be aboard a plane leaving LAX within the next six days, which of course led to the shutdown of the entire airport. It was at this point that the government formally agreed to publish the manifesto, stating public safety concerns. There was, of course, no bomb on the plane, otherwise the Unabomber's kill count would probably be significantly higher. In fact, his stated reasons for lying about the bomb leaving LAX was that he wanted to prove that it was impossible for the system to truly value the lives of individuals within it. The point is covered in the manifesto, but in essence he says that the system in its current form cannot both function effectively and value the lives of people living within it. He proves this by forcing the government to shut down an entire airport in order to protect the lives of the passengers and in the process they must if only for a short time hemorrhage money in a way that would be unsustainable in effect saying the moment the system places its inhabitants first it becomes unsustainable this is one of those crazy points where it's like yeah this is kind of a crazy demonstration of a point that you can't really argue with it's true it's true they shut down that airport it becomes economically unstable but they're putting the safety of people first it just doesn't work. The system doesn't work. F*** the system. <laughs> I, just, yeah, I don't agree with him. Perhaps this is true, though it feels more like he's just aggrandizing his newfound power over big companies. By September of 1995, the Washington Post was ready to publish the manifesto in their morning edition of the paper. On September the 19th, it was released to the public, and try as I might, I can't seem to find any comment on just how many copies were sold on that day, but it's safe to assume that their sales didn't do too badly. No, you could bet people bought this and read this. Collectively, the FBI held their breath, waiting, and sure enough, tips started rolling in. It's gonna be mental, the number of tips. For sure. At first hundreds and then thousands in the first few days alone. There were, of course, the crazy people turning in their dog walkers' neighbors. 
their son <laughs> scorned ex-wives probably the odd karen or two turning in the manager of their local eating establishments <laughs> these kind of tips were to be expected have been rolling in since the tip line had been set up sprinkled among them with the promising leads concerned friends sisters and every other kind of connection you can imagine people had read the manifesto and it reminded them of someone they knew the fbi did investigate all of them but nothing connected they would check previous criminal records educational achievements records of where they lived in the past where they came from and finally they would cross-check it with their own list of suspects this turned up several hundred promising leads but even then nothing as the weeks turned into months the flow of tips began to slow and the pool of potential suspects began to dry up along with it eventually 1995 turned into 1996 and there were still no leads though the tips were still coming in they were of the kind you could discount almost immediately then in the middle of february a letter from an anonymous source found its way into the inbox for the tip line it was reviewed and passed up to superiors in the investigation though it didn't say who sent the letter it did have a name known to the fbi as unibom suspect 2416 otherwise known to his brother as ted and this is going to be a two-part episode and that is where we are going to leave this episode a cliffhanger the fbi on the cusp of uh well getting a real good idea of who the unabomber might be which is pretty crazy the i know this story you might know this story it gets wild we're gonna get into all the depths of how they eventually pull him out of the woodwork and all this stuff it gets crazy tune in next time where we'll be doing that for now thank you for listening or watching if you're enjoying this show please leave a like below make sure you're subscribed and i'll see you next time Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.